This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Lydia, Tim, Susanna, Sam VR, and Emmeline. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. First, we have a question from Caleb F. He asks, Why did Jesus' disciples not understand when he said he would die and be raised in three days? Well, Caleb, it's frustrating, isn't it? The disciples often seem to miss things that we think should have been obvious to them. Even though Jesus spoke about his coming death and resurrection pretty openly, people often misunderstood. For example, after cleansing the temple in John chapter 2, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John tells us that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. But it was only after he was raised from the dead that his disciples realized this. So, what was the problem? Were they just not paying attention? Well, not exactly. I think the real issue is that they had different expectations of what the kingdom would be and what the king would do. And sometimes your expectations can blind you to what's really being said or what's really happening before your very eyes. At a certain point in Jesus's ministry, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus starts teaching more explicitly about his death and resurrection, and the disciples start to understand. But even then, they still seem to resist what they're hearing. They don't want to understand because they want the kingdom to come in fullness now, and they want Jesus to reign physically now, not just spiritually. Really, it's when the Spirit descends in power at Pentecost that we begin to see this start to change. The eyes of the disciples are opened, and things that they'd had a hard time seeing before now become clear. The words of Jesus, as they remember them, now all start to make sense. And it's the Spirit leading them to understanding, in part by changing their hearts. And honestly, it's the same for us today. We often struggle to accept things that the Bible clearly teaches because we don't want to accept them. That's why we need the Spirit working in us to lead us into understanding too. Our next question is actually two questions that are interconnected, one from Lydia and one from Tim. Lydia asks, did God know that Adam was going to sin in the garden? And then Tim asks, why did God make the world when he knew there would be sin in the world? First, let's answer Lydia's question. Lydia, God is all-knowing, which means that he has always known everything that there is to know. God never learns new things. He never discovers something that he had no idea about before. God is never surprised by something that he didn't see coming. 
So clearly, God knew what Adam would do in the garden. Sin did not take God by surprise. So that leads us to Tim's question. If God knew, then why did he make the world in the first place? Well, Tim, the simple answer is love. Jesus says that God loves the world so much that he sent his son into the world to save it. And if he loves the world enough to save it, then he surely loves it enough to make it. When we look at the state of the world, it's easy to think something like this. If I was God and I knew how things would turn out, I wouldn't have made this world in the first place. But honestly, that just shows that we don't love the world the way that God does. For us, the world doesn't always seem worth it, but to God, it does. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Susanna. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Susanna's question. If we are supposed to love our enemies, should we love Russia's government? I really appreciate this question, Susanna, because it shows that you're taking what you learn at church and then applying it to your life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And the news today is full of reports about the invasion of Ukraine and the horrible things that are being done there by the Russian military. So the question for Christians is obvious. If we are supposed to love our enemies, then does that mean we should love Russia's current leaders? Should we love Vladimir Putin? And if the answer is yes, does that mean we should love Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin too? That seems like an impossible position to be in. So let's unpack the question and see what Jesus can teach us. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, when you hear Jesus say that, if you ask yourself, okay, who do I not have to love? It sounds like Jesus would say, no one. In other words, if he's telling us to love not just our neighbors, but also our enemies, that sounds like he wants us to love everyone. If Jesus commands us to love every human being, and Putin is a human being, or Hitler, or Stalin, then yes, it sounds like he's telling us to love them, too. But, but that sounds crazy. How do you love someone who's doing great evil? How do you love someone who's trying to hurt or even kill you? Well, that's the right question. How? Jesus doesn't just tell us to love. He shows us how to love. It doesn't look exactly like what you might think. So, how does Jesus love a sinner? By sacrificing himself as an atonement for sin. That self-sacrifice is perhaps the highest expression of love. But it's not the only one. How else does Jesus love a sinner? By condemning his sin. By calling for his repentance. How does Jesus love a Pharisee? Oh, by humbling his pride. How does Jesus love an unjust ruler? By insisting that he do justice. 
How does Jesus love the unrepentant? Well, ultimately, by giving them justice. When we think, how do I love someone? The answer is usually be nice to them, agree with them, don't make them mad or even uncomfortable. But that's not how Jesus loves. And it isn't how we should think of love either. Remember when I preached about Matthew 5, I included some words from Richard Baxter's wonderful book, The Christian Directory. He tells us to love our enemies by loving the good in them and desiring for them the same happiness that we want for ourselves. He tells us to love them by praying for their repentance and reconciliation to God. When a government leader does wrong, these are both good pieces of advice. Don't just blindly approve and support whatever the leader does because he's the leader. Rather, support and approve what is good and not what is evil. When the leader does evil, pray for repentance and pray that there will be justice for the victims too. Love doesn't turn a blind eye to wrongdoing. Baxter also points out that love doesn't mean being a punching bag. He says you can love your enemy without putting a sword in his hand. If we are passive in the face of evil, we give wrongdoers the means to condemn themselves all the more. And that's not loving. You should warn them of the evil they're doing, oppose them as graciously as you can, and protect the innocent to the best of your ability. And you should strive to do all of this in love, not hatred, not bitterness. Now, hopefully this helps a little to see how it's possible to show love even to your enemies. But obviously it doesn't make it easy. Loving your enemies is a hard calling, and Jesus tells us that the path to follow him is a hard one. This is something you will always struggle with. In fact, to the extent that you can do it at all, it will be because of the Spirit working in you. The thing to remember, though, is that we were God's enemies. And instead of hating us, he loved us. And that shows us how to treat our enemies. If we don't strive to love our enemies, then we're being a little hypocritical, aren't we? Now, before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Sam VR wants to know, are you a billionaire? Great question, Sam. And to make sure I give you an accurate answer, I double-checked my bank account. The sad truth is that I am not a billionaire. In fact, I'm not even a millionaire. And as far as I can tell, that's not likely to change. I suspect that part of the reason is that God knows I wouldn't make a very good billionaire. There are a lot of things in life that I've wanted only to realize that God kept me from them because of what they would do to me, how they would change me, or how poorly I would handle them. Another part of the reason might be that, as my wife can attest, if I became a billionaire today, I wouldn't be one by tomorrow. I seem to be a lot better at spending than I am at making. And now Emmelyn asks, why was Sarah mad at Hagar for having Ishmael when it was her idea in the first place? I'm so glad you asked this because it is pretty ironic, isn't it? Looking at the situation from Hagar's point of view, she's got to be wondering, what's the problem? I did what you told me and now you're angry? But this is sadly a very common trait in people. We admit all the time that we're all sinners, but we don't think much about what that means in detail. 
One of the consequences of our sin is that we're all so hypocritical. We judge other people for things that we do. Worse, we judge them for doing things we encourage them to do. In Sarah's case, I think the problem was something like this. She had come up with a plan to fulfill God's promise for him. She didn't think there was any other way. And then God miraculously gave her a son, Isaac. Now, before that, she might have felt grateful for the success of her own plan. But now it became an embarrassment. Instead of blaming herself, though, she took it out on her servant, which is what most of us would do in that situation. As sinners ourselves, we can have a lot of sympathy for Sarah. And as people who've been on the receiving end of other people's hypocrisy, we can sympathize with Hagar, too. It's a good reminder to us not to take out our own disappointments on other people, isn't it? Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions. 